Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we are going to be talking about Deutero-Isaiah. Deutero-Isaiah, or Isaiah 2, is the second part of the book of Isaiah. It runs from chapter 44 to 55. This section is unique because this section is addressed to exiles under the Babylonian captivity. And this would be interesting, if true, if that uh, Isaiah actually wrote this section, because this would be Isaiah prophesying, ministering to people who lived about 120 to 140 years after his time frame. As such, a lot of uh, scholars have hypothesized that this section was written by a prophet in the style, in the tradition of Isaiah, and that's how it was eventually categorized into the book of Isaiah. Scholars like Michael Heiser, they see this as a legitimate way to preserve the integrity of the Bible, to preserve inerrancy. They say it is understood that prophets were allowed to append books and add things to books in the style or the tradition of the prophet with whom they identified. So you, a lot of times you'll see writers of the prophets introducing their own almost footnotes or specifying things in the story that weren't necessarily written by the prophet himself. You'll see a lot of different points of view shifts from first person to third person, back to first person, stuff like that, stuff indicating that it wasn't necessarily the prophet himself doing the writing or that there was a later editor or a later compiler of the various dialogues. The standard Calvinist understanding of this section is that these chapters, chapter 40 through 55, were written by Isaiah himself. And furthermore, this entire section is supposed to be read as a prophecy, and a prophecy directed at people that would not live for at least a hundred years later. There are definitely open theists who hold this view. These people are usually the people who are more concerned about biblical integrity, and they tend to not like uh, critical scholarship and critical scholarship theories. And the way that those views, those open theist views, they deal with the text mentioning a King Cyrus, a king that wouldn't be around for hundreds of years. There's there's a couple competing theories, Bob Inyart. He mentions that, you know, God has no trouble naming kids throughout the Bible. I mean, God names Jesus, and God names John the Baptist, and he, get, he gets to name people who he wants, and we see how he does that. He does it through, you know, he either asks the person or he kind of forces it on them, and that's perfectly in accordance with free will, and it doesn't necessitate total omniscience of the future, stuff like that. Other scholarships say that, you know, the Cyrus line could have been known as early as the end of Isaiah's ministry. So Isaiah could know the Cyrus dynasty's name before he actually died. And that, that would be something in existence for him to reference. The text itself, though, it looks like it references and speaks to people who are alive at that time, people who are under the Babylonian captivity. So I find it kind of hard to believe that this is supposed to be a prophecy that was held within Israel up until the Babylonian captivity meant to for them to reference back to and you know to help them in this time like a hundred years before the event actually happened. It text just doesn't seem to read that way. Especially when the text mentions Cyrus, it seems to be a known quantity that Israel 
knew who this person was, and that person was coming to deliver them. Not that there's going to be some far-off king that they've never heard of that's going to rise up and take power and come save them. No, the people that this was meant for, they would understand who this is and what he's doing, and they'd be able to set this in the political, social context of their own time. The text itself is a strong form of advocacy. When people turn to these passages, they kind of forget what this text is attempting to do. It's advocating something. It's trying to do something. In the first chapter in Isaiah 40, we hear Isaiah 43, very famous verse in the Bible. It says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And this text is really advocating to its audience, trying to tell its audience, you know, God is here, God is powerful, God can save, God is going to reform this land, so you guys also need to reform your own acts and activities. This text is trying to convince people of something. So when Calvinists take this verse, these chapters, and then they try to make these chapters about God controlling all events, you know, the, the entire overtone of this entire set of chapters is all about convincing people to do something, convincing people to choose. It's not about God controls everything, God controls every person's individual decisions, stuff like that. No, this is saying God is powerful, and God can do things, and God is going to come save us, so you need to reform yourselves so you can be part of that salvation. The basic assumption of these chapters is that people have free will, and God does not control everything. That's what this entire thing's founded on. That's why it was written, so that people can respond. So Isaiah 4.10 really gives us a good overview of what is going on here. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with the young. So we understand that God is going to come do something. God is coming to save Israel. They had been under Babylonian captivity. They have been under oppression. And now God is going to act. God is going to move. And God is going to save them. Verse 12, I always like to point out to Calvinists. Calvinists think that these verses are a very strong form of advocacy for their own position. But they kind of reject the verses, the verses with which they do not agree Isaiah 40:12 it says who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance so what's god doing here so never mind that he's measuring water with his hands what's the concept that that is communicating it's saying that god counts the waters god counts the waters and if you remember in calvinism god's knowledge is inherent it's just it's just there it's part of his you know simplicity and immutability he just has the knowledge and this verse represents god as gaining and finding knowledge through use of counting yeah it's metaphorical and it's metaphorical that god has hands to count the water but what's it communicating it's communicating not even about knowledge it's communicating about God's power. It says God has the power to count the water. And in Calvinism, you don't have to count anything if you're God. You don't have to try to acquire this information. What's God doing? Why is he counting this? It, the metaphor just does not make sense if you're 
if you believe in the traditional negative attributes of God. So to the author of Isaiah 40, God can count, and that is one of the ways that God gains knowledge. The knowledge isn't inherent, but God is acting in order to gain this knowledge. It's, that's not the point of the verse. That's not why he wrote the verse. But you kind of see his theology in the verse. His verse is about power. You know, God is so powerful that God could look down on earth and count and understand and know things. Again, who is the author writing to and why is he writing? He is writing to Israel in captivity, who God has to compete with them, with the compete with the false gods to try to say, hey, I exist, I'm powerful, I could do things, you should serve me instead of these other gods. And so what these verses are going to do, is you're going to see a lot of comparing and contrasting. And always God is incredibly powerful. It'll reference things that God has said and things that God has done and prophecies that God made that he fulfilled. And it's all about this power that God is the true God and God is powerful. You don't get the sense of negative theology. You don't see Isaiah trying to convince people, people who don't believe that Yahweh is the correct God. They don't believe Yahweh is powerful necessarily. They might not even believe that Yahweh really exists. They're worshiping false gods. He doesn't argue with these people like a Calvinist would. He doesn't talk about these negative attributes and try to define what makes God God and, and talking about having all power and all knowledge, stuff like that. No, instead he points to power acts. He says God is powerful because look at what he can do and look at what he's done. He doesn't argue like a Calvinist. Isaiah doesn't. The Deutero-Isaiah author doesn't do that. He instead argues like an open theist would. It's funny, when an open theist is trying to convince a Calvinist that God is powerful, the arguments really are exactly like this. God is powerful because look at these amazing things that he has done. So the open theist uses the arguments that are in Isaiah against the Calvinists. And Isaiah, the text, doesn't argue like a Calvinist would, speaking to other people. So really, Isaiah, this, this entire section, these chapters, they're a very strong case for open theism. You come quickly to a verse that says, To whom will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Now, Calvinists like this verse because, if you remember, one of their fundamental attributes is acity or pure actuality, meaning God can't be compared, God can't be in relation to other things. But that's not exactly what he's going for here. He's saying that no one could compare on the same level as God. So maybe for, let's say, football, there's a very famous football player called Peyton Manning. I don't know anything about football, but I, I assume he's pretty good. So someone could easily say, who can compare to Peyton Manning? And there, there might be arguments. And I'm sure there were with Yahweh as well. People would say, oh, this God did this and this God did that. And they were trying to compare him compare their own gods to Yahweh, but the argument from this text is, you know what, those those claims are false. There's no independent verifiability of those claims, and those claims weren't made beforehand, so it might have been an ex post facto claim. And you see these comparisons being shot down in the arguments that the text is presenting. So Colin Gunton writes in his Act and Being, he says, to whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. This is coming from verse 25. The form of the questions might clearly expect the answer, nothing. 
and yet the whole passage is set in the context of a revealed theology of creation, in which affirmations of a wholly positive kind are made about God's power, as it is manifest in creative action. The God of this writer is known through his redemptive historical actions. He goes on to say, This is an image, concrete and personal, with which God can indeed be compared. Drawing on the tradition of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt, the prophet compares God to one whose responsibility it was to redeem a family member from slavery, so that his critical theology is only directed against the idols and does not provide the basis of a kind of independent negative theology which we meet in the tradition. What this is saying is that God is compared in a sense, and he's not compared through negative theology. This entire chapter, this entire section is not about God's incomparability on a metaphysical level. That's not what it's about. And the text uses very concrete language to compare God to the other gods. So the comparison isn't one of negative theology of these unlimited attributes versus limited attributes. The comparison is one of scale. If you set a false god next to Yahweh, the true god, they're just not even on the same level. They can't compete. They can't compare. The false gods are so below Yahweh that you, it's just... It's just ridiculous to try to size them up. So the text in Isaiah 40 goes on to compare God with idols, and this comparison is going to be made throughout this text. The idols are lifeless, the idols can't do anything, and they just kind of sit there, and they don't have the properties of God. And what are the properties of God? God can look, God can see, God can do stuff, God can smell things. The, the comparison is between act and deadness. So when the Calvinists try to make God into an immutable being, it's in stark contrast to what God considers attributes of the true God, the, the attributes of being a living, being able to do things. So this chapter, chapter 40, ends with God saying that God will never tire. God will never weary. And if people follow him, because remember this text is advocacy towards Israel in bondage, saying Yahweh is the true God. If people are to follow him, if they were to follow him, God's capacity for energy to not be wearied, that will be transferred to the people. So is that metaphorical? Is that uh, supposed to be uh, indication of what life's going to be like after the day of the Lord? We're not sure, but in some sense, people are going to be gaining this attribute that God's going to be imbuing to them. So chapter 41 starts with a list of things God has done. God has stirred up nations. God has caused nations to go do things. And he says, who has done these things? I did. I am the Lord. And so God is starting to point to his acts in history to try to convince Israel that he is powerful. God moves from here to start talking about what he will do for Israel. He will kill their enemies and he will make a good place for them to live. Again, he's advocating to them, these are reasons to worship me instead of these false gods. From here we get to a passage that is used often by Calvinists. God says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, and tell us what is going to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know, and that you are gods, to do good or to do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. So one thing to remember is when Calvinists use this verse, they usually don't focus on verse 23. 
where God says, you know, do good or do harm, and so that we could see that you are powerful. This verse is about power, and the Calvinists would have this about knowledge. They're saying this is God's trivia debate with the false gods. God saying, I know more than you. That's not at all what's going on here. And that's a complete rejection of the entire context. The entire context is about God's power. God is proving to Israel that he's the true God, and the false gods are just fake gods. And so one way to do this is to see whose prophecies come true. And so the prophets say, this is going to happen, and then it does happen. That's not about knowledge. That's about power, because God's saying, these are things I will do. And that's how you know who the true God is, the one who's able to do what he says he's going to do. And that's what this passage is about. The prophet is saying, you guys don't have comparable cases for your gods that we do for ours. Our God is powerful because he could do what he says he will do. This is not a trivia contest. This is not God saying, oh, let's uh, see who remembers an event from 20 years ago. What did you eat for cereal? Ah, oh, knowledge, 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 knowledge. No, this is all about prophecy. This is all about God said something. God said he would do something. God said that the Babylonians were going to punish Israel on his behalf. And those things happened. He says, do you guys have similar examples? You don't. The verse goes on to specifically give an example of what they're looking for for this contest. God says, I stirred up from the north, and he has come, from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name, and he shall trample the rulers as mortar, as the potter treads the clay. He's saying, I'm telling you this, the, this punishment's going to happen. You know, I've told you previous punishments. I declared it from the beginning. He didn't declare it from the beginning of the world. In context, that would be really stupid. That would be a really stupid point. God is saying, you know, I told you from the beginning so that you could understand did people exist in the beginning of the world? No, they existed before the event began, and he told them them in the beginning so that they would understand when the events took place, what he declared, and what he caused to happen. So when Calvinists take this verse and they try to make God making all these declarations from the beginning of time, that's totally contrary to the entire context of what's going on here. God's saying, I tell you, I tell people, I tell them, I say, this is what I'm going to do, and I make sure it's on record and it's written down so that when the thing does happen, it could be compared to. This is not God saying, I make eternal declarations that only I know about for certain amounts of time until it's revealed thousands of years later. That's, that's not what this verse is about at all. And so you see how Calvinists try to rip things out of context. They try to take it out of its natural understanding, the natural reading comprehension of the verses, because they're desperate to try to turn these verses into proof text for their negative theology. So God points this out. He says in Isaiah 24, 9, he says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So God's argument here is, I told you what was going to happen, and then that thing happened. Now I'm telling you something again, and that thing's going to happen also. So this is an argument of, you know, I'm right. I have power to make things happen. You know, trust me when I say this is going to be how it is because I'm going to make it so. So chapter 42, after describing all these great things that God's going to do, restoring justice on earth, which it 
it gives us the assumption that justice is not currently being had on earth if God has to act to bring that to earth. So God's not meticulously controlling the entire earth. The entire earth's not going according to his divine plan. God has to act, and God has to restore justice. And this is what God says. For a long time I have held my peace. You notice that God is waiting silently and holding in what he wants to do. This is not a concept of timelessness. This is God enduring and waiting. He says, I have kept still and restrained myself. See, God is restraining himself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in the way that they do not know and paths that they have not known. I will guide them. So what is God doing here? He's saying, I've been waiting for a long time. I haven't been acting, but I do now need to act. I need to cry out. I need to unleash the emotional buildup that I have been gaining over this time period. You notice how these concepts, all of these concepts, God is not timeless. God is not immutable. God is not impassionate. God has a lot of passion, a lot of built-up emotions that he acts upon. This is not negative theology. So God then describes all the different things that he does, that he's going to do. He says that, I'm going to take your enemies, I'm going to give them to you as ransoms, you're precious, I'm going to honor you. The entire world is going to be basically under your control. And then he says, all nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right, and let them hear and say it. It is true. And so he's saying, look at my previous claims. Those have come true. Do you guys have previous claims that also came true in the same fashion, so such that you could say, we're right and you're wrong? He's saying, I do. I got those things where I said this is going to happen, and then it did happen. And that's why my testimony right here, when I say about the things that I'm going to bless you about, why that is accurate. I got reasons, do you? So then something very interesting happens in the text. And God says, remember not the former things. He says, just forget about those. And nor consider the things of old. So forget about all that old stuff that you were prophesied. Guess what? There's something new that's going to happen. He says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. He's saying, you know what, this new thing that I'm doing hasn't been previously described. It's something brand new, and you're not going to be looking in your previous prophecies in order to understand this new thing. Well, it kind of also points to this text being concurrent with the exile. If this is a new thing that God's doing and he's saying to forget the old things, if this was an old text, probably wouldn't make much sense in context. So what this new thing is, is that God is going to liberate Israel from the Babylonian captivity. And there's parallels that are drawn. An allusion is made to the event in Exodus, when God liberated Israel from the Pharaoh and brought them through the Red Sea, part of the waters. And this is the kind of idea that's being communicated to them again, but this time it's going to be through the desert it's not going to be through this water salvation that you had in Egypt. And this is very important because God is, again, drawing parallels between his past power acts and his current power acts. He's saying, 
remember these powerful things, I'm going to kind of do that again. I'm going to liberate you guys in the same way that I liberated you from Egypt. So God gives a good mixture of threats against people who are unrighteous and promises towards people who are righteous. He says, follow me and I will bless you. One interesting verse that comes up within these series of curses and blessings is Isaiah 43:25, And God says, I, I am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so what's God doing here? He might be saying to them, you know, you guys have previously been bad, and I am going to just forget about those sins and treat you. If, if you are repentant, I will treat you well, because, you know, you guys deserve death for all your past sins, but you know what? I like having you guys. I like having you as my people. So I'm going to just blot it out for my own sake. You're not getting what you deserved. You're getting pardoned because, you know, this, this action benefits me. And this kind of harkens back to the Exodus 32 text in which Moses gives arguments to God of why God should save Israel. And time and time that text is referenced throughout, like, Ezekiel. And it'll say that God saved him for his own sake. And so often in the Bible we have God doing things because God just feels like it. And sometimes it's pardoning sins, and sometimes it's not killing people. And sometimes it's, you know, in the case of Exodus 32, it's God, he's trying to preserve his image among the people as a God who's not going to be killing his own people. So in this context, in the context of Isaiah 43, it might be a reference back to Exodus 32, in which the people were not saved for their own sake, but for God's sake. He might be drawing a parallel saying, again, this is happening. Or it could be just God's giving himself general attributes, that God often does things for his own sake. God will often pardon sins so that he just doesn't have to deal with executing justice. So after this, God again renews his promises to bless, and that, that's the entire story of this Deutero-Isaiah text. God has a series of curses and blessings and challenges for false gods and, and reminiscing about past power acts and, and trying to convince Israel to act in a righteous manner. And it cycles around, and it, it keeps jumping from one to the other, blessings, curses, remembrances, challenges... And it's all designed to influence the audience to think a certain way and to reinforce these concepts to make the audience worship Yahweh rather than the false gods and to think about the, their beneficial, their good life that will result. And interspersed throughout these texts, in, included in this cycle, are these continual references to God's everlastingness, God's attribute by which God has always existed and God will always exist. And God says, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. Back in Isaiah 40:28, he says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint nor grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. In Isaiah 42:5, it says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth and from what comes from it. So the idea that's being reinforced consistently in Isaiah is that God is God. And God always has been the supreme God to which there are no other gods. And there's an idea of everlastingness, that God 
has always exist and will always exist. And all these verses are always in the context of power. You know, there might be other divine powers out there, but none of them can contend with God. None of them are going to replace God. And none of them could have a prayer to be where God is at. And God will forever remain in his position, in his place, as the God of the universe, the creator of the world. And no other God, no other power could have that claim. Real quickly, in Isaiah 40:28, we had to reference this verse in relation to God's everlastingness. That line is, there's no searching his understanding, which that's the King James. The ESV renders it, his understanding is unsearchable. And this verse is often used for claims of negative theology, as if this is the one verse that says God's omniscient. That's not actually what that statement is about. Um, the understanding... There's kind of an idea in the Hebrew language that that's like his craftiness, his resourcefulness, the, his mental power, his processing capability. We see from the text already that the author thinks that God gains knowledge through counting and stuff like that. And this word for understanding is often in contrast to knowledge throughout the Bible. It's it, In the list of things, it's listed alongside knowledge. So knowledge is not what this is talking about. This is talking about God's resourcefulness and it's not a claim for negative theology that God has all of something and that nothing can you know if he didn't have one of those little things and he wouldn't have that attribute that's not what this is about it's just saying that God's ability to process information his craftiness his ability to do things it's uncontested and much like how the text treats the false gods the other gods his understanding, his uh, capability are uncontested and comparable. So we're running out of time for this survey of Deutero Isaiah, so maybe we might have to have a part two. We'll see if uh, we got time for that or if my interest fades. You know, sometimes I start all these projects, but I never get around to finishing them. But uh, we'll see how that goes. If you like this podcast, please uh, comment on it on our God is Open website or on the companion Facebook group, God is Open. Thank you for listening.